0: going to be a busy, shine children's ministry. And also, just a you know, quick reminder, there are shine ministry bags that are being given out this morning. If you're the parent of a uh, kindergarten to fifth grader, be sure you get one of those before you leave. So let's pray. I know we, it feels like we've been standing the whole time. I think we have been, but that's, that's good for you, right? Kind of gets the blood pumping. Fewer of you will fall asleep during the sermon, so that's good. So uh, let me pray for us. Lord, uh, it's just a lot. There's a lot that's been happening this week and uh, how good it is. Oh, how good and oh, how pleasant it is when the brethren dwell together in unity. And so we thank you for that, just for the comfort that we draw from being with one another. But Lord, as we move into the lives of others, especially the lives of people who are hurting, maybe they're hurting because of the hurricane. Uh, They were likely hurting before the hurricane. How, how can we help them understand that the gospel story is one of such comfort and beauty and strength? And how can you equip us? How can we be better at asking questions and understanding how the, the gospel story is better than the story of me? Uh, so illuminate our hearts today, Lord, as we look at the woman at the well. And uh, Father, I'm a, I'm a very sinful and, and broken human being. So would you overcome all that by your spirit today that you would be honored and glorified for we pray it in the name of Christ, our Lord, amen. So the text comes from John chapter four. I'm gonna start reading uh, in verse 13, Uh, but a Samaritan woman has come to the well. She encounters Jesus. She asks him for a drink and they begin to have a conversation. And Jesus answers one of her questions saying, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. Fact is, you've had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I who speak to you, am he. And just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. This is the word of the Lord today for you, his church. May God open our eyes to the privilege, to the wonder of what it is to share the gospel as we understand the stories that people live out of and the way that leads them to places of darkness and despair. There is a better story. And I pray that the spirit of God would help us see that today. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So for as long as I can remember, I have loved the smell of fresh cut grass. I I just love the way it smells. I love the look of a freshly mowed yard. From the time I was a little boy, I would plead and beg with my father, Please let me mow the yard, which unbeknownst to me at that time, that was the plan all along. That's why he wanted to have a son, was so that I could cut the yard. But about the time I'm 10 years old, my dad took me in the garage. He showed me the spark plugs. He showed me how to change the oil, showed me how to sharpen the blade. And then he said, you're on your own. And from that moment forward, about the time I was 10, I built a little empire of yards in my neighborhood where I'd get about 10 bucks for mowing the yard. But what I loved more than even money in my pocket was the smell of the grass and just the pretty way that it looked. It gave me a tremendous sense of satisfaction and accomplishment. So I was a little surprised when I discovered that the way I perceive freshly cut grass, that smell that to me sort of represents the the newness of life, right? And, And it's just, there's so much good about it when I smell it. What what I perceived as this really good thing is actually in reality, not that at all. The smell of freshly cut grass is a distress signal. I I know that sounds crazy, but researchers at Texas A&M University discovered this last year and they wrote this, when there's a need for protection, the grass signals the environment via the emission of volatile organic compounds, that's what we're smelling, which are recognized as the feeding cue for parasitic wasps to come and lay eggs in the plant that's being eaten or attacked, right? So in layman's terms, that means when the grass gets mowed, it's being attacked. It releases these chemicals that we smell and we love, but it's signaling insects to come and try to get rid of the intruder, right? And, and before you all think that what I'm going to say next is grass has feelings and we should stop mowing our yards, Okay, I'm not gonna say that, mow your yards with reckless abandon. I, I'm, I'm just saying, I think that's pretty cool. Like then the providence of God in the way that God created the universe that he gave grass, the ability to send out a distress signal that can be heard by a very, very small part of the natural order. I never cease to be amazed by the intricacies of God's creation, right? The grass can call for help. So if God did that for grass, how much more is God gonna do that for you and me, we who are the pinnacle of his creation? Of course, he's going to enable us to call out for help. The problem is sometimes we act more like the grass in terms of getting silent We don't wanna talk about it. It's what I prayed about a minute ago. God's given us the ability to speak. He gave us language so that we could say, I need help. And yet there's something about our culture that says, no, no, you shouldn't do that. That's a sign of weakness. And so on the outside, it all looks good. We look like a freshly mowed lawn, right? Way down here where people can barely hear it there are distress signals that are going out. You know, there's that, that guy or that girl and it seems like every social event they go to, they're always drunk. And the rest of us, we go, oh, well, that's just Joe. You know, he's alive for the party. He just loves to have a good time. Well, actually that drinking is a distress signal and we're just choosing not to hear it. Or maybe there's that guy who's a workaholic. He's at the office all the time. And oh my gosh, he gets lauded for it. The company loves him. They talk about his commitment, his productivity, such a good employee. But all those hours, way down here, that's just a distress signal. That's saying, you know what? There's something wrong in my marriage or my family. And people, this is happening all over the country. This is happening in 21st century America where we've been taught to put out a freshly mowed lawn. And to say in front of everybody, oh, no, life is good. But way down here, there are distress signals that are going out. And it's incumbent upon the church to listen, to hear it, to understand it. Remember last week, we talked about what a beautiful job Paul did as he spoke to the the Athenians in, in Greece. And he talked to their social elite. But as he did so, he understood the culture He understood the story that they were operating out of. So if you and I are going to be good at gospel sharing and at speaking to people at the point of their need, then we need to understand the story that they're operating out of. And if I could just pick a phrase, it would be the story of me. It's the story of me. And at first glance, oh my gosh, it looks great. On the outside, it looks like a freshly mowed yard right? Everybody's saying, I love the progressive culture I live in. I'm independent. I've got freedom. I can do what I want, when I want, and no one can judge me. And I'm not beholden to the authority or the opinions of others. This is a wonderful life. I'm free. Everybody's included and love wins. hear that all the time. Robert Bella, a sociologist, describes this whole phenomenon, this ideology as expressive, individualism and defines it this way the belief that each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality is to be realized this is to be lived out by refusing to surrender to conformity with a model imposed from the outside so in a an in expressive individual individualism you are your highest and best purpose, your happiness, the pursuit of your desires. And no one from the outside is gonna make you conform to what they think you get to decide. Jason Chatra writes this in his book, Telling a Better Story. When a transcendent reality like God is no longer woven into the social imagery of a culture, no longer directing people to look outside of themselves, to the divinely given fabric of the universe, people will still look to something to guide them. And for many, they choose to look inside themselves. A God who does not comply with personal feelings becomes largely irrelevant. And see friends, that's the kind of God that so many people who are expressive individualists have developed. A God who doesn't comply with their feelings is irrelevant. Get rid of that God. I want a God who always corresponds to my feelings. I want a God who always agrees with me, who's gonna do what I want, who's gonna answer my prayers, and I'm the one who controls him. Well, guess what, people? That's not a personal relationship with God. That's a God who looks like you. If you truly have a personal relationship with God, then God is always gonna contradict you. God's always gonna challenge you. God is always gonna tell you things that you don't wanna hear because he is trying to shape you into the image of his son, Jesus. And quite frankly, none of us are there yet right? We need to be shaped into the image of Jesus. But instead, we don't want a God who doesn't comply with our feelings. And so what we've done is we just worship gods that look like us, that look like me. And you know what? That is no hope whatsoever when a hurricane hits. None. And that's why what we're talking about today matters. That's why gospel sharing matters. It mattered before the hurricane but it matters even more today because there are people who are right now, everything that they thought was true has been shattered. They don't know what the future looks like, why? Because they've been depending on me as the God within who's gonna take care of them. And all of a sudden they realize they can't. And it was true beforehand. All the data is there. We have so much more in this country than we've ever had before and yet we're less happy more depressed more anxious and as a result more medicated we're more violent we're more polarized and we're less certain about the future and and maybe the most scary part of all is our average life expectancy last year dropped by 2 years think about all the medical advancements that have taken place in the United States of America and our average life expectancy in this country dropped by almost two years, why? Because of deaths of despair. A death of despair is classified as one in which that person lost hope and therefore they began drinking too much, they got addicted to drugs and overdosed or they took their life by their own hand in some other form. Those numbers are skyrocketing such that our average life expectancy has plummeted. People on the outside, they want you to believe all of the the political leaders of our culture, they're trying to say, oh, we're making progress and People look like freshly mowed lawns, but way down here are the distress signals. It's the data. It's the science that says people are dying and they're crying out for help. It's the story of me and it's not working. And we as the church have got to start training ourselves to listen to it. When you go knock on your neighbor's door this afternoon and ask them if they need help, this is all part of it. What's the story that they're operating out of? And that's what gets us to John chapter four. Oh, goodness, I'm talking too much. Gotta gotta speed up. It's a preacher habit. John chapter four, the woman at the well. And you know, Paul gave us a masterclass last week in how to share the gospel. Jesus does the same thing with the woman at the well. Can you imagine sharing the gospel with someone and they respond to you by running to town and telling all the people in the town, you gotta come hear this guy. I mean, that's pretty good. Do you, I mean, can you imagine what would happen in the communities in which you live if we got so good at gospel sharing that the people we just started engaging with ran and told their friends, hey, come talk to this person. They seem to know what they're doing. Well, you can when you start to understand why the gospel is a better story than the story of me. And the woman at the well, she was living out of the story of me. She's sort of a classic 21st century American. She's living according to her own moral code. She's trying to find love and pleasure in all the things of the world. She's doing what she wants, when she wants. But we also know that in the midst of all that, it's not working because she's still thirsty. She comes to the well and Jesus quickly points out the fact that not only is she physically thirsty, she's spiritually thirsty. How do we know this? It was the Jewish practice and tradition that women went to wells in the morning to draw the water for the needs of the day. They went as a group and they went in the morning. This woman comes at midday by herself, which tells us that for a variety of reasons, we don't know all of them. She's been rejected by her community. She has few friends. The women don't accept her and she shows up at the well in great need and she encounters Jesus Christ and Jesus begins to share with her in this penetrating way why the gospel story is better than the story of me in regards to morality, in regards to identity and in regards to love, those three things. The gospel is a better story in regard to the story of more of, of, of the story of me in regard to morality because again this woman was living the way she wanted to no one was going to judge her she was going to be promiscuous if she chose to she was going to do what she wanted verse 16 Jesus calls her out on it he says, "Go call your husband and come back I have no husband she replies and Jesus said, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you, that you're with now is not your husband. And what you've just said is quite true. So Jesus absolutely calls her out on it. He says, you're, you're living to your own moral code. You're living according to your own ethical standards. Well, well, what's the end of that? Where does that lead? It's classic expressive individualism. Because as John Paul Sartre said, if we leave the realm of God and move him aside, and we're just on the plane of human beings, then there's really no such thing as right and wrong because you can say something is right and I can say, no, it's wrong, but there's no authority to determine between you and me who's right and who's wrong. So in the end, everything is permissible, Sartre says. In the end, when you live in the morality, the moral ethical structures of the culture of me, everything is permissible because there's no standard for right and wrong. And friends, if right and wrong doesn't mean anything, then nothing means anything. And everything about the fabric of our community begins to crumble. You see what happens? And so what does Jesus say? How does he engage her? Jason Chattraw puts it this way. We sense an obligation to live moral lives. We sense we owe our friends our care and concern, but we don't feel an obligation to an inanimate object, but it still leaves this question of what is moral and why do we owe humanity this? We don't feel like we owe anything to inanimate objects, but we do feel like we owe something to the people of Fort Myers. We feel like we, owe, we, we ought to do something for people who are suffering. Where does that come from? And that's what Jesus says to her. She brings up the question of worship and he says, no, no, no. You Samaritans, you've gotten it wrong. There is a God There's one God, he is a spirit and we're called to worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, he says to the woman, there is a truth. There is a standard for right and wrong. And the good news is, as we learn later, it's never gonna change. You're never gonna wake up one morning and suddenly discover that the standard has changed and your morals and your ethics. you need to behave in a different way. That's never gonna happen. You know the timeliness, the timelessness of scripture that Jesus has called us to live in particular ways. And she says, oh, well, I know there's this Messiah and he's gonna come and tell us about it. And Jesus says, I'm him. I'm the one you're looking for. I'm the truth. There's a right and a wrong and there's a standard for your moral and ethical behavior. And it's me. So when we engage people in the community, we need to ask questions like, so when it's time for you to make decisions, how do you make those decisions? Well, what's the grid through which you put those decisions? How do you know what's right and how do you know what's wrong? And how does that compare with others? Is there a standard for right and wrong? If they go, no, it's just what's best for that person. Well, then the next question is, well, then how is that ultimately gonna play out in the end? You have to help them understand how the story of me may actually lead to a pretty bad ending, but a single standard for moral behavior and truth. It's why it's our first core value, truth. There is one. The story of the gospel is a better morality than secondly, it's a better identity. Think about how this woman has been trying to figure out who she is. She's a Samaritan, but she comes to Jesus and he's a Jew and she realizes, well, I'm inferior. Then she's a woman and she realizes, well, men don't talk to women, so I'm inferior again. She sought out relationship and marriage and has been a miserable failure and all those things. And so she finds no place, no place to put her identity. And I think the failure that we have sometimes is we think, and the culture, the story of me says this, that we're gonna derive our identity from within ourselves. And scientifically, sociologically, that's just not true. You don't derive your identity from within yourself. You derive your identity from all the social cues that you're given from the time you're born. Your parents, your teachers, the environment you grew up in, what you saw on television, the culture is constantly giving you messages that says, this is who you ought to be. Well, guess what? that message from the culture is constantly changing, which means your identity is always in this state of flux. Again, from Jason Chatra, everyone looks to other people and embodied ideals to discover what is important and where they should find their identity worth and happiness. Yet the people or things from which we source our identity are constantly being threatened or taken from us. And when that happens, we feel robbed of our true self. You see what happens if you decide that your identity is in some worldly thing, the ability to preach a sermon or dribble a basketball or dance or solve a math problem, then you will always be beholden to that thing. You will always be so afraid that you might lose it because if you lose it, then you lose yourself. You lose your entire identity. David Foster Wallace, who took his life by his own hand, great American novelist, he said, if you sell out to success, you will always fear failure. If you sell out to receive the love of others, you will live a fragile existence, constantly striving to secure affection. If you sell out to your career, you will end up bitter and lonely. And it goes on and on for so many people who had built their identities on their businesses, on their nice homes, And on their addresses. All that got washed away. It's all gone. And now they're left trying to understand. Who am I? In the absence of this. Ask yourself that question. What is it that you put so much stock in for your identity? And what if that got taken away from you? From me. What if I lost the ability to speak? What would happen if I couldn't talk anymore? Would I still be? Who I am, I would be if I heed the words of Jesus who said to the woman at the well, if you drink this water, you'll never be thirsty. In other words, you will be content. You will never feel as if there's something that you need that you don't have. You'll be okay with the circumstances you're in and the person that you are. Verse 13, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. You talk about a better story. You want to live in a culture where you feel like your identity is always unstable? You want to live a part of a better story where your identity is hidden with God in Christ and it never changes because you're a child of the risen Christ. And then the last thing is the gospel story is a better story when it comes to how you're loved. Look, Look at what Jesus does. Jesus absolutely calls this woman out on the sin of her life, And yet she doesn't run and she doesn't get angry, why? Because no one has ever loved her like this. No one's ever loved her like this. He's a man and he's talking to her. Jesus ascribes to this woman worth and inherent value. Even the disciples come up. And what's it say the disciples are in their mind? They don't say it, but they go, why is he talking to a woman? Not Jesus. And he asks her questions and he listens to the answers. Jesus sees her. He listens to the end that she runs into town and to all the people that have even rejected her. She says in verse 29, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. You understand the magnitude of that statement? What she's saying is Jesus is loving me in such a way that he can tell me all the bad things I've ever done. And he loves me anyway. He's talking to me. He's invited me in. Tim Keller says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be loved but not really known is comforting but it's, it's surface, To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. I know you and I don't like what I have come to know and so I reject you. That's our biggest fear. But then he says, but to be fully known and truly loved is what we need more than anything. And so I've I've told you this before. Until you and I learn to allow the love of God to be poured out into our hearts in such a way that we know fundamentally, that we have been loved by God from the foundations of the world and will be loved for eternity, then we will always be placed in a position where we are manipulating the relationships around us to get the affection and the love that we need, that we crave, that we must have. And I was given this little picture. It's probably worth five bucks by a friend of mine who had spent a lot of time with the Lord this summer and he got one for himself and a couple of his friends. And he said, I realized in my time with the Lord that there was sort of a picture in my heart and I decided that I would get this as a reminder that every day I was gonna pray and ask God to fill this pitcher with his love, with his grace and goodness so that I would have in the course of any day what was necessary for me to be the man that God wanted me to be. And so now this pitcher sits on my desk as a reminder every day that God has filled my cup. He's filled my pitcher with the profound sacrificial love of God in Christ. And as a result of that, then I can go and serve people without expectation or condition. I don't need anything returned because I already know I'm loved. I don't have to manipulate anybody to get what I need. I don't have to go serve hurricane victims to make myself look good to the rest of the church. Oh, you see what I'm doing? I'm a good person. I have worth and value. No, you don't have to do that because you already know you have worth and value. Why? Because God gave his life for you. And he's filled your cup. He's filled your pitcher. So we can go and love and serve freely and unconditionally, and as close to the way that God has loved us in Christ as maybe we'll ever get. And friends, all of that starts at this table. This is where we understand how profoundly we have been loved. People, our culture today, they're they're giving you a picture of a freshly mowed lawn, but the distress signals are everywhere. We as the church need to hear them so that we can begin to engage with others to help them understand. There's a better standard for how we live. There's a more stable identity in which we can find out and discover who we are. And there's a love that can fill your heart in such a way that you can be content and at peace as you serve others not needing anything back without expectation or condition. I pray that's the kind of church we would grow to be, the kind of church that would serve our community and our state in the days and the weeks to come. Let's pray as we prepare to come to the table. Lord, I thank you for the, the beauty of that conversation. And while it was true of the woman, I know it's also true of many people in here. We we tend to have a foot in both camps. We kind of live out of the story of the gospel and we also live out of the story of me. We kind of want to do what we want to do and we want to be our own moral compass. I'm not sure we really want someone to come up and speak clearly into us about all the things that we've done wrong, but that's what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Because not only does he show us that, but he shows us the grace that overcomes it. And he shows us that at this table. Father, this table is where we ground ourselves in the true identity that we possess as your children, that you would give your life in order to name us and claim us as your own. And that you would love us not only today, but eternally. In such a way that you know everything about us and you love us nonetheless, what a gift. And Father, I pray that we would be those who understand the urgency of how we share this gospel story with others, especially those who today, the story of me has come up wanting, they're crushed by it now. Father, how do we offer them hope? As we come to this table, I pray, O oh God, that you would now Allow these common elements of bread and cup to be anointed by your Holy Spirit that they might become for us the living presence of your broken body and shed blood that we who receive them would know the profound love that you have for us that compels us into this world as your people. pray in the name of Christ our Lord, amen. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together. He took bread and he broke it. He gave thanks, he gave it to the disciples. He said, take and eat, this is my body. It is broken for you. As often as you eat of it, do so in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup and he poured all of it as all of his blood was shed for the remission of our sins. He gave it to his disciples and he said, take and drink. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink of it, do so. In remembrance of me. Friends, in this church, we believe in what's called an open table. That means that any of you who profess your faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus as the payment for your sin, as the promise of your reconciliation with the Father, then you're invited to partake of this holy meal. We do have the prepackaged elements, if you would prefer that. We also have gluten-free elements in the gold tray at the front and the back. We will receive uh, the sacrament by intention. That means you'll tear off a piece of bread. You'll dip it in the cup. Don't try to take the cup. We will hold the cup. You dip your piece in the cup, consume it, come by the center aisle, return by the side aisle. We'll have two stations at the front, two stations in the back. So the last row will get up and you'll go to the back station, come back by the side aisle, First row, you'll come forward, go back from the side aisle, and we'll work our way to the middle. So I want to invite our servers now to come forward, and please prepare your heart for this, the sacrament this morning.